Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hello and welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast with me, James Holland, and also Al Murray, although I've left Al back in England completing his latest tour, uh, while I am recording this in Washington, D.C., and across the Herring Pond, because I'm on a research trip, and lots of people say to me, or ask me, how do you go about doing a book? So we thought it might be interesting for people to, um, for me to kind of explain a little bit about what I do and how I go about putting a book together. So there's kind of two phases to it really and the the first phase is the research bit and obviously when I'm starting a new subject I've got a base knowledge you know I know a fair amount about it but what I don't know is the you know the kind of detail that gets me to a position where I can actually write a book and that requires an awful lot of research and requires a lot of going to um, archives, walking the ground, talking to people as well, although actually that is, um, you know, talking to people who were there is obviously rarer than it used to be. I mean, I used to do an awful lot. I've done hundreds of interviews with Second World War veterans, but but obviously they're very, very old now. Those that are still alive, you know, their memory is is often not great, although it can still be absolutely remarkable. Um, so it's much more about kind of finding these voices elsewhere from archives and, you know, collections of oral histories and memoirs published and unpublished and all sorts and getting those voices is really difficult because it can be really difficult because I always like to do these books in the round and also I have a different approach to um, a lot of other historians you know if you read a a lot of the big uh, really successful narrative historians like I don't know Max Hastings or Rick Atkinson um, Anthony Beaver College I say these these kind of people you know what they do is they have lots and lots and lots of voices but they're only ever one line it might be a you know a line from a letter a line from a diary um, I do think that human drama side of things is really important is what drew me to the subject in the first place this idea of what would I have done if I'd been 19 or 20 in the in the 1940s during the Second World War, you know, would I have joined the Navy? Would I have joined the Air Force? Would I have joined the Army? To be honest, I'm a little bit slapdash, and I think, you know, carelessness would have probably um, done for me at some point. But that was the kind of the starting point. But what I do want is I want to kind of bring fresh analysis to it, and I want to, you know, I want to bring something new. There's no point in writing a book if it's, 
if it's if you haven't got anything new to say. On the other hand, I don't believe in revisionism for revisionism's sake either. I think you know you've got to have a start point where you've got to say, well, okay, I've got something I want to get off my chest, um, and, and this is the way to do it. And that was certainly the case with the War in the West trilogy that I've, I've done two books of, and certainly the case with Normandy forty four. Well, all of them, to be perfectly honest, and Battle of Britain and Dam Busters and the whole shebang. So um, there's always something new to be said, um, and that's absolutely the case with Sicily. I mean, it's interesting because Sicily. Carlo Deste did a book in, in 1988, I think it was. Um, then John Follain, um, this, who was then a Sunday Times journalist, now works for Bloomberg, um, he did a very good book called Mussolini's Island in the early noughties. But it hasn't really been much since or, or, you know, in between, to be perfectly honest. So, But I do like to get, I like to have a cast list. I like to make sure that there's a whole load of people that the reader gets to know and gets to empathise with. And I think it's really important to do it in the round. I think it's important to do that 360 degrees and not just through the narrow prism of our own Western allied experience. So I want Italian voices, German voices, civilians, um, combatants. Um, I want Navy, Air Force, you know, and there's another thing I'm really keen on is making sure that it's not too land-centric, that it's... that. You know, you get across the fact that certainly from the Allies' point of view, they were fighting a big war in the air, on land, and at sea as well. And I think you have to reflect that. You have to reflect that in the voices, and you have to reflect that in the way you're writing it and the analysis that one brings to the subject. So anyway, um, what have I been doing recently? Well, I, w- I was in Sicily a few weeks ago. Um, it was also half term, so I took my my 12 year old daughter with me as my research assistant. Uh, and I also hooked up with uh, a great old mate of mine who I shared a house with uh, when I was at university and who now lives in Messina in the northeast corner of Sicily. Um, and he speaks Italian fluently and I don't. Um, so he came along and helped as well. And I met various people along the way um, um, who were all incredibly helpful. Um, but one of the first things I did, for example, we, we landed in Palermo in the western side because I really wanted to see Trapani Airfield. And that is where Jagdgeschwader 77 were, particularly Mackie Steinhoff, who was the commander of JG 77 at the time. And he wrote an absolutely amazing book called The Straits of Messina, more of which another time. Um, but in, and it's based on his diary. And it's really, really interesting because he, he we, we went to see the, the airfield. It's still a kind of a military airfield, but you get the lay of the land. You get the sense of how it fits into the plane um, just south of Trapani. You, you, you find out how it sits with the sea. Um, you can see uh, Monte Arice behind, sort of rising up. And there's this incredible village right on the top. Um, but I also had this description of the operations room. Group operations room was, was sort of snuck away halfway up the mountain. And he gives a very good description, and I'll I'll read it out. So he says, uh, and this is in Steinhoff's book, he goes, To get to the group operations room, one had to drive up a steep, dusty road full of hairpin bends, and then turn left below the high saddle and the village of Ariche, along a bumpy track leading to a small piece of level ground immediately below the summit. From there the view was magnificent. To the southwest stretched the great expanse of the island, while at one's feet, almost it seemed, within touching distance, lay the port and the white buildings of Trapani beside the bay. Adjoining the town was the airfield with its new concrete runway, and further to the south the shimmer of the salt workings. Masala could only be guessed at in the haze. 
In the distance, the olive groves were no more than a blur of greyish-green from which houses, villages and small towns stood like white smudges. Behind the hut, the rock face of Mount Arichi rose steeply. For weeks now, workmen have been busy excavating a cave in its side. Ever since our return to Sicily, their picks and pneumatic hammers have been battering away at the brown rock, while the excavated material had piled up at the yawning entrance and was now as high as a house. The cave was to form a horseshoe around one of the immense natural pillars supporting the table of Manterici, and would thus have two exits. Although the work had not yet been half completed, the cave was already serving as an air raid shelter. So, okay, so that was my description. And uh, we drove up these hairpin bends towards Manterici. And then, there it was. You know, there was the, the sheer rock face. There was this little level field, this, this sort of plateau. I'm stretching out in front of it, and there were some old ruined huts. There was a kind of sort of a wall around it, and what looked like a sort of watchtower. And lo and behold, into the rock face, there was a cave with those sort of metal rungs going up towards it, and only one because, of course, they didn't finish it. And you knew when you were there, based on this description, that we were absolutely in the right place. And it was incredibly exciting, and the view that I saw was the one that he just described, that I just read out, that he described in the book. So that was really exciting, and it was really good, because now when I'm writing about that, and I'm writing about JG77 and, and Mackie Steinhoff, I can absolutely visualise it, and that will help me in my, my writing. Um, and we also then went off to Villalba, um, which is where uh, Don Carlo Vizzini lived, and he was the kind of head of the mafia in 1943. And then we went to Troina, although I've been to Sicily a lot over the years. Um, I hadn't ever been to Troina, which is a scene of um, one of the great battles that the American 7th Army um, have against the Germans on the kind of 1st or 6th of August 1943. Um, and again, just so interesting to get the lay of the land, to see where the American attacks have been, where the German counterattacks have been, and, and the sort of channels over, over the ground over which they'd, they'd taken place. So really, really interesting to do that. And then lots of interviews with old, um, old guys who had, had witnessed the invasion. Um, who had seen it and um, remembered it happening. And, and that was all very interesting. And, and to get a picture of what Sicily was like, you know, it's really, really tough. You know, there was a couple of people I said to them, so, you know, did you have running water and electricity? You know, no, we didn't. Um, so, you know, without wanting to be too personal, what happens if you, uh, you know, need to do a number one and a number two? And, you know, rise, smile, we chuck it out the window, chuck it out the door. I mean, really? I mean, it's like, it's like medieval London. Um, absolutely extraordinary. It's just a reminder of just sort of how backward... Sicily was really in 1943, you know, it was, a, it was a country, you know, they might have got sort of, you know, suit jackets and, and fedoras and stuff, but basically they're living the same life that they had lived for, for hundreds of years beforehand. And there is this temptation when you're, when you're going into Europe to think that, you know, Sicily, like Britain, like France, like any, like Germany is a sort of modern industrialised nation and, and, you know, Sicily just wasn't. So all that stuff was incredible grist to the mill and really, really helpful. Anyway, that's enough about Sicily. So um, uh, we bade Sicily goodbye and since then I've been over in the US. So I had to go and give a, a talk in Texas at the weekend um, and then I hot-footed it up here to Washington and, and the reason coming to Washington because loads of archives within spitting distance here. There's uh, the historical naval yard, um, there's uh, various NARAs and NARA is the National Archives and Records Administration and there is also the Library of Congress. Uh, so various archives that one will want to go to and I suppose you know NARA 2 uh, which is up at, um, it's actually it's not in Washington DC strictly speaking, it's in the suburbs, it's in College Park um, which is, strictly speaking, Maryland. Um, and it's on a kind of sort of big, fat, 
typical American wide road. It's it's kind of you can only get to by car. It's huge. It's sort of it's like the National Archives in London. It, it's it's a big modern building that looks like a sort of part of a university campus. And you know all these archives around the world, whether you be going to Freiburg in Germany, whether you you know whatever it is, um, various ones in Britain, states, France, wherever, um, and indeed Italy, they're all different and they all have their own quirks. And the thing about Nara is. You know, anything to do with security over here, you know, Americans don't, you know, they take it very, very seriously post um, September the 11th. And so when you get there, you've got to kind of go through the whole x-ray machine, empty your pockets, take off your coat, take off your belt, um, blah, blah, blah. And all that's quite boring and quite tedious. Um, and when you get up there, because the problem is, is that all the stuff was archived originally before digitization. And so there's no standardized way. And it's just absolutely impossible to get your head around how to do this fortunately there are a, a sort of a bevy of um, professional archivists there who you can go and talk to and you can say well you know what I want to do is try and find out about the mafia in Sicily in 1943 I want to look up this and you know from sort of reading other books and stuff you have a sort of sense of what what might be here uh, or what might be in the archives but it can take quite a long time you need a sort of you know several hours just to sort of get your head around ordering stuff up um they've also got all sorts of sort of weird rules there so for example if you if you're wearing a jumper um and you want to take your jumper off you're not allowed to put it on the back of your chair you have to tie it around your waist why i have no idea um if you want to use your camera uh, your f iphone you know and take lots of photos for example of, of documents you can but you have to go and get a little sheet of yellow paper with a stamp on it saying the date um and then you have to put it in a plastic sheet um, sort of cover um, which hangs from a light above the desk again you know it just makes no sense whatsoever but anyway you just have to sort of go with the flow and go okay fine if that's 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 how you want to do things that's how you want to do things um but anyway I've, I've had a great time there the last couple of days you know i found all sorts of stuff and you remain may remember those who've been listening to the podcast for a while that we were talking about the um, biscari Incident where Americans had turned their um, their guns on on Italian prisoners, and I thought, well, you know, it'd be quite interesting to kind of look into that a little bit more and see see what there is. And of course, there's a whole load of stuff on that. There's all the kind of um, the court martial proceedings, and I'm just going to read you a little extract here. So this is something that I found. Um, there's testimonies of eyewitnesses. Um, uh, and, and this is particularly in the testimony of Sergeant West, who was the guy who, who was ultimately found guilty. Um, and here's a little bit here. So it says, After halting and separating the prisoners, accused, i.e. Sergeant West, told Sergeant Brown and one of the guards that he was going to shoot the prisoners. He was going to, I quote, shoot these sons of bitches, asked for and obtained from Sergeant Brown a submachine gun, a Tommy gun, and a clip of 30 cartridges. In response to a question by Sergeant Brown, the accused remarked, this is orders. Without interference from anyone, accused then inserted the clip of cartridges in the weapon, told the guards if they did not want to see it to walk away, and then went to the front of the larger group of prisoners, which was halted in a column of twos facing him, and began firing at the prisoners, holding the gun in one arm. The prisoners started begging on their knees for mercy. One witness testified... They were sort of shouting and yelling, no, no, in Italian. I think no is pretty universal, to be honest. Um, anyway, it says, accused emptied the clip and all but three of the prisoners fell to the ground. The three ran away to the rear and one of the guards gave an order to stop them. The guards fired upon them, the fleeing men, and one of them fell 50 or 60 feet away. 
Accused secured a second clip of cartridges and examined the men in the group he had shot. Sergeant Brown testified, and I quote, He merely went pretty close to them. I do not know how he determined they were still alive any more than, than that he could see them still breathing. And if so, he shot them. This witness also testified that accused proceeded to check to see if any were still alive, and if they were, he shot these. So, you know, and so it goes on. I mean, but, it, but, it, but it's fascinating. And, you know, when you're, when you're sitting there at your desk and you're looking at the original document, the copy of, you know, the piece of paper that was first written during the trial, you know, you know in the aftermath of this event, it is, it is really exciting. I mean, this is one of the great things about doing research. It is effectively detective work, and, and it's a lot of fun um, and, and really fascinating to do. Um, so this is another interesting piece that I came across. Um, so uh, I was looking up... Um, uh, there was a there was a file a record group, um, uh, and a file that said something about you know it, it mentioned there was some testimonies of cap no it said translations of captured German documents now this could be anything I mean literally it could be anything it could be really boring rubbish uh, but actual fact it was really good because this was the translation of a captured German document and it was the commanding general of the um, Hermann Goering Panzer division. Um, written from the divisional headquarters on the 12th of July, 1943. So this is General Paul Conrad. Um, and, you know, people always, you know, people always talking about kind of elite German divisions. Well, the Hermann Goering division at this time was sort of really cobbled together by all sorts of, you know, people who no longer could fly, um, cooks, uh, um, you know, all sorts. I mean, really all sorts. And they weren't particularly well trained, but they were quite well equipped. They had a few Tiger tanks, they had Panzer Mark IVs, all sorts of stuff. But anyway, this is written just two days after the invasion. And it says, and it says, I had the bitter experience to watch scenes during these last days which are not worthy of a German soldier, particularly not of a soldier of the Panzer Division Hermann Goering. Persons came running to the rear, hysterically crying, because they had heard the detonation of a single shot fired somewhere in the landscape. Others, believing in false rumours, moved whole columns to the rear. In one instance, supplies were senselessly distributed to soldiers and civilians by a supply unit that had fallen victim to a rumour. I want to state in these instances that these acts were committed not only by the younger soldiers, but also by NCOs and warrant officers. Panic, panzer fear and the spreading of rumours are to be eliminated by the severest measures. Withdrawal without orders and cowardice are to be punished on the spot and, if necessary, by the use of weapons. In other words, you're going to be shot. I shall apply the severest measures of court-martial against such saboteurs of the fight for freedom of our nation. I mean, wow. Uh, and I shall not hesitate to give death sentences in serious cases. I expect that all officers will use their influence in order to suppress such an undignified attitude in the Panzer Division Hermann Goering, signed Conrad, Commanding General Hermann Goering Division. I mean, wow, isn't that amazing? So that is the kind of the kind of stuff that one hopes to come across. Um, you don't come across very often, but are very, very happy when you do. And I can absolutely guarantee that will be making its way in some form into my book. So I'm now in the... Um, main reading room of a manuscript reading room in the Library of Congress on Capitol Hill. Um, the Capitol is just outside. It's uh, it's all very splendid. Um, 
I'm talking in hushed tones because, you know, we're not really supposed to speak in these reading rooms. And I'm looking at the 1943 diaries and correspondence of General Carl Tui Spots. And it's just fascinating because you're looking at stuff that I just can call no one has been looking at for, I mean, seriously, there's things that are stapled together which clearly no one has folded over and looked at. Um, so I'm now continuing with my work on um, General Spots and his diaries, and I've just got to a, he's now, um, this is this is research work for a documentary feature film I'm doing of a book I wrote called Big Week. So I'm looking at all this stuff in February 1944, January 1944, when Spots takes over as um, overall strategic um, Commander Chief of all U.S. strategic forces in Europe in the ETO, um, and it's fascinating going through, you know, there's all sorts of correspondence going back between him and and Hap Arnold and Barney Giles, who is the um, Assistant Chief of the Air of the Army Air Force, and all sorts. And it's just lots of stuff about how many Mustangs they can get and the urgency with which they need to destroy the German Air Force before Overlord and uh, the planned invasion of um, southern France. Um, but I'm now on a different folder and <laughs> I'm just looking at a, um, a letter here from 10 Downing Street, Whitehall, 14th of February 1944. So it's a Valentine's Day in 1944. And it says, My dear General Spots, I am desired by the Prime Minister to request the pleasure of your company at dinner at 10 Downing Street on Wednesday next, February the 16th, at 8.15pm for 8.30pm. The King has intimated his intention of being present. Yours sincerely, J.M. Martin. Dress, service uniform or dinner jacket. What I've got to say, I'm, I think if I'd got that invite, I'd be tempted to, uh, to accept that one. Well, I've said goodbye to um, General Tui Spots. And um, I managed to do some sweet talking with Dr. McClear, who's one of the uh, historians and archivists here at the um, Library of Congress, because I really wanted to look at General George Patton's diaries. Now, they've all been transcribed because his handwriting was so appalling. Um, and they don't really, generally speaking, let punters like me have a look at the originals. But I said, well, you know, I've come an awful long way. Did the old sob story about coming across the Atlantic. Um, and I said, I just need to see July and August 1943, you know, the, the, the dates of, of Operation Husky and the invasion of Sicily and the campaign in Sicily. I said, well, OK, we can just look at those, those two months. And here I am looking at the original pages of General George S. Patton's daily diary. Wow. So I'm pretty happy about this. And what I'm even happier about is because actually... The folder I'm looking in actually goes from May the 21st, 1943, through to July the 2nd. So that is a bit of a bonus. But I tell you what, it's <laughs> it's going to take me a little bit of deciphering. Under the something for Husky, we have a pro-British... <laughs> yeah, I'm getting the jest already. A pro-British statesman at the top, Ike. A British... Chief Admiral Cunningham. Oh, wow. This is going to be fun. But anyway, it's one of the great joys of doing original research is when you're looking at original documents in the handwriting of the people who have become these towering figures in history. And whatever you might think of Patton, he's one of the biggest generals that the Allies had in the Second World War and certainly one of the most famous.
So it's quite amazing looking at this. So I've now left the Library of Congress and um, stepped out into the beautiful sunshine of a lovely November day here in Washington, D.C. It really is absolutely gorgeous. You know, um, still a few orange leaves on the trees, but it's, a, it's absolutely stunning here. Um, but I'm heading home and uh, really I've got to get on with writing this book. So actually while i was um while i was in the archives looking at patton's diary i got a i got an email through from my friend roddy back in back in sicily and he's been looking at this um book that um this italian professor um let me have a look at when we were in jella in sicily just a couple of weeks back and this was by a battalion commander in the livorno division which was one of the divisions that was in action on the 10th and 11th of July um, and opposing the Americans um, who were landing at, um, at Jella on the sort of central southern part of the Italian, of the Sicilian coastline. Um, and anyway, I, I quickly, while I was in the back of this guy's car in Jella, dodging the rainstorms, um, I had a quick look online to see whether I could get a copy of this. It was published in 1947. Um, but I couldn't. It's, I couldn't find a copy anywhere. So I quickly photographed the whole darn thing uh, in the back of his car. Um, then when I got home, I download all the pictures, convert them into a PDF, then reduce the file size so it's all a bit man uh, manageable, sent it back over to Roddy in Messina in Sicily, and he's got to work on it. And... Um, it's fantastic. I mean, okay, so let me read you this extract. So this, this guy is called uh, Colonello Ugo Leonardi, and he says, So we marched in line in order to prepare us for the attack in the morning. We walked slowly and in silence. In that perilous moment, I would have liked to read the thoughts of the officials and soldiers. In front of those men with whom I'd lived in perfect harmony and who in a short while would have to throw themselves into an attack against a fierce and emboldened enemy on account of the success they had already had in Sicily, I felt an enormous responsibility. But I had faith in them. This faith never left me, not even in the most tragic moments of the fight when all seemed lost. I predicted, though, that many of us would remain on the plain of Jella because the war that some discussed nonchalantly and sometimes dissatisfied back at home in offices, in the bar, streets and piazzas is fought with arms and not words, blood and not newspapers. Faced with such episodes which we read about or heard about, we were moved, but it is a long way from the reality of combat with your heart in your mouth and blood in your eyes amongst dear comrades who fell, screaming, wounded. Bullets that whistled past from all parts, bombs and grenades that crushed one's spirits, dangers and surprises, communications and transport that didn't work, unforeseen and often insurmountable difficulties, lacking arms, commanders dying, companies without commanders, supplies finished and reinforcements that didn't arrive. Oh yes, I believe that Satan's hell was nothing compared to the battle on the plains of Jella. So it's just very kind of florid, very melodramatic. And I've got to say, you know, without wanting to sound like it's a massive cliche, that is my experience of looking at Italian diaries and Italian memoirs. Um, so my job is now is to kind of use that, that material and, and, and get my cast list together and how I then put it all, how I structure it, because you've suddenly got this mass of information. How do you kind of, how do you marshal all those resources? How do you make the most of it? Well, what I do is I have a timeline. Um, so I have um, just events like you know, the invasion on the 10th of July. That would just be an ordinary plain text. 
Then I have my characters and I color code them. So blue is British, green is Italian, red is American. Uh, for example, purple is, is German. And I add my names into those general events. So if, if some of my characters are in action on the 11th of July, for example, they will be there and it'll say, you know, Leonardi in action um, in green on the 11th of July. And that gives me my structure. And then it's just a question of kind of just actually just writing it. So that bit, for example, that I've just read out, how I might then write that as he's approaching the battle, because part of that extract is as he's approaching the battle, and part of it is once he's in the battle. So I would say something like this. I'm not saying this is exactly what I'm going to write, but, but it would be along the lines of... Um, on the morning of the 10th, Colonello Leonardi was leading his men forwards towards the fighting. No one spoke. Leonardi, for one, was in contemplative mood, conscious that they were about to enter battle and that not all could possibly survive. The burden of responsibility for their young lives weighed upon him. He also felt not a little bitter. Back at home in the piazzas and bars, it was easy to talk nonchalantly about the war. It was far off, distance, and seemingly out of reach. But now he and his men would soon be in the firing line, and he was keenly aware they lacked modern equipment, transport, and sufficient weapons, and that their communications network was poor. Oh yes, he later noted in his diary, I believe that Satan's hell was nothing compared to the battle on the plains of Jella. So there you go. That's sort of, that is how you do it. Um, but my job now, obviously, is... <laughs> is to get back home and actually get on with it and pull it all together and start writing this book. But um, it's been great looking at the archives this week, I must say. And actually, I say I'm going back to do more. I've got more the week after next in America as well. So um, And actually in the Imperial War Museum in London on Tuesday. So, uh, yeah, I'm a busy boy. Anyway, that's it for now. Um, I hope you found this interesting. Um, Al and I will be back, and we're planning all sorts of things, not least a trip to the Ardennes in December to mark the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. And cheerio from Washington, D.C. Bye.